on the record on News Talk. That's right, you're listening to On the Record. Kieran Cudahy with you until one o'clock today. 53106 is the text number that will cost you 30 cent, or you can get me on Twitter at Kieran Cudahy. With me in studio today, Jennifer Bray, Deputy Political Editor with the Times Ireland Edition, Colette Brown, Barrister and Columnist with the Irish Independent, and Jared Highland, Irish Examiner, Columnist, Public Affairs Consultant, former Senior Political Advisor. Good morning, everyone. Hello. Very welcome to the show. Um, just run through the stories making the front pages for people listening. Uh, the Sunday Independent leads with Michael D. must face real screen. Scrutiny, says Gavin Duffy. It's an interview Gavin Duffy has, uh, I suppose, wherein he's launched his presidential campaign. Justice Minister challenges parents as antisocial crime soars as well on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Uh, the Sunday Business Post leads with vulture funds in new move to slash tax bills and escape regulation. They have a presidential story as well on the front page. Secret presidential poll puts Sean Gallagher close on Higgins' heels. This is a secret presidential poll commissioned by Sean Gallagher supporters, we should say. And the Irish Mail on Sunday, Varadkar accused of failing families on cancer, growing pressure on Taoiseach, on, on, on Taoiseach over cervical check. And the Sunday Times finally exposed Qatar sabotaged World Cup rivals with black Ops. Richie McCormack from Off the Ball is going to be with us in the next hour, running through that story in a little bit more detail. This is an exclusive story, uh, some months in the making from the Sunday Times, so Richie will have it all. Uh, Radker destroying UK relations, says Martin as well on the front page of the Sunday Times. Stephen O'Brien has that story. And actually, there's plenty of stories in all of the papers today, particularly the Sunday Times and the Sunday Business Post, uh, to do with Michal Martin and Leo Radker and their relationship. Uh, it's on foot of uh, interviews given lengthy interviews given uh, by Michal Martin uh, to the papers today uh, the Taoiseach is obsessed with his image and public relations is the headline that they've pulled out in the Sunday Business Post page 14 Hugh O'Connell has that story uh, George it doesn't look like Fianna Fáil are changing their line of attack on Leo Varadkar this is what they they settled on as soon as he became Taoiseach and they're sticking with it spin versus substance well look don't Pay the blindest bit of difference to what <laughs> anyone says and, and just look closely at what they do. Uh, and what they've done is they've been in a confidence supply arrangement uh, that will continue to and through this budget if the government proceeds with one. And afterwards, there will be a review. And I think some arrangement will succeed this arrangement. So what you're looking at is is noise. Um, and um, that's uh, we're in the middle of the summer. And I think these stories are far uh, less... Don't turn off your radios, people, if you don't. You know, th- this isn't the noise that Jared is referring to. It is noise. Um, <laughs> Fianna Fáil doesn't want an election. Um, Fianna Fáil, uh, I think, are committed to uh, continuing the life of this doll uh, out of self-interest. And I think there are very other good reasons as well why it should. And I think Fine Gael's problem is twofold. I think a lot of people in Fine Gael understand that these are the good old days. They have 28 uh, ministers out of 50 TDs. And there is no version of winning for Fine Gael in the next election that is going to uh, repeat uh, that for them. And a lot of these ministers, if Fine Gael wins, will be on the back benches looking at that victory. But Leo Varadkar himself and a much smaller number of key people around him, I, I, I think, are looking at these poll numbers and are a bit besotted by them. Uh, I think there is a real sense uh, around the Taoiseach uh, that they would like to bolt and go. But he is a fundamental problem. He cannot bolt and go unless he kicks the door down. And if he kicks the door down, that's a premise to the general election campaign that I'm not sure those uh, uh, poll numbers would, would survive for the succeeding three or four weeks. 
Um, and I think that notwithstanding... But do you think it's in that he'd get blamed for... Precisely. Well, he, see, this is kind of a perceived wisdom. I'm not sure how much I agree mm. with that. People, that politicians or political parties get blamed for calling an election. So well, that kind of happens for a day or two and then it, I don't know, moves on, doesn't it? See, it goes to the whole thing about the character of government. You know, there's a lot of complaints out there and, you, you know, we're going to be talking about some of them, including cervical cancer and so forth, that people are very angry about. But personally, maybe I'm in a bubble. I don't hear much of any call for a general election. This doll was elected for five years. Uh, people are, are very astute about politics. They expect when a job is given that people go away and do it. And I think there will be a serious lack of credibility to present yourself as the person to run the country. Wait for it, Kieran, for the next five years when you haven't stuck to the job you're given for the last five years. Jennifer, you're speaking to people in Leinster House all the time. Is that true? Does anyone in Fianna Fáil want a general election? Absolutely not. No, they they really don't. And in the last week, even though Leinster House has been pretty much, it's like we're more likely to see Casper the Ghost. You know, um, any Fianna Fáil TDs that I have bumped into, I have asked them about the polls and uh, about the recent meeting between Varadkar and Martin. And they absolutely don't want an election. But when I ask them about the polls, they sort of laugh and say, ha ha, you know, we don't pay any attention to that. What a stupid question. But of course they do. Um, and Michal Martin, in one of his interviews, says they have their own constituency by constituency polling. And he is basically suggesting that he knows something that we don't know, that Fianna Fáil are going to do much better. But obviously the case is that they're, they're far behind Fine Gael. Um, although, I, you know, just on what Gerard was saying, I'm not too sure that people are bothered whether there's an election or not. I feel like we've had so much chat in the last year. Will there be an election? Does this mean an election? Oh, he called the Taoiseach prickly. Does that mean there's going to be an election? Do you know what? (laughs) I've gotten so far down the road with this now. I'm like, there'll be an election when there's an election. That's when the election happens and we'll all get over it. I just don't know if people are that bothered anymore. I think people blame politicians not for that, but for things like their cervical check cancer, um, for that controversy, for failings they make, for over-promising, for things like that. An election is just par, par for the course in politics and it'll come when it comes. Yeah, and, and cervical check, we should say, as I mentioned, it's on some of the front pages. Uh, there's plenty of coverage inside the papers and we're going to come back to it in a couple of minutes' time. But uh, Colette, is there something in that in the sense that it's, I suppose... When, when the only reason for an election maybe is is for p- politics, you know what I mean? It's nothing to do with governing. It's nothing to do with agendas, because I suppose, that, you know, if Leo Varadkar is looking for it, like he is in government at the moment, why seek an election wh- when you're there already? Is there, is there something in that argument? Yeah, well, I think when you talk about um, politicians being blamed for calling an election, I don't think it's cr- that's necessarily correct. It's that politicians need the correct pretext to call an election. So there needs to be some issue that Fianna Fáil can blame Fine Gael for that they say is important enough or woeful enough um, to warrant an election having been called. But I think there's a certain level of irony because Micheál Martin is all over the papers today. He apparently gave lengthy interviews to nearly every political correspondent in the country. Um, and he's the one who's calling um, Leo Varadkar uh, image obsessed and accusing the government of engaging in spin when he's spinning all over the place himself and doing quite a good job of it as well. So um, he's giving uh, Leo Varadkar good kicking. But I think that's probably what what the Fianna Fáil party want to see from him at the moment. They want to see him being, you know, less agreeable. They want to see him standing up a bit more to try to put the Fianna Fáil point of view. What uh, John McGuinness said on Morning Ireland last week was that Fianna Fáil has a bit of an identity crisis at the moment. And I think there's definitely something in that. What does Fianna Fáil stand for other than propping up Fine Gael at the moment? And they consistently give out about uh, the government's performance on health and housing. Um, Micheál Martin is giving out about that again today. But 
what are they doing to improve the performance of the government on these key issues? Now, they've been in government with Fine Gael since 2016 and they at least bear some of the culpability for the failure of the government to meet its targets in these very important areas, seeing as they're consistently are happy enough to continue to give the government their support. Yeah, see, this is the problem, isn't it, Jared? for Fianna Fáil, is that that line of attack that Varag results been in no substance, as I said, like, mm. you know, they've been trotting that out for a year now and it mm. doesn't really, like, I, I'm sure there's probably plenty of people who agree with it, but they're not going to be swayed, really, one way or the other. Yeah. There's, not, there's not, the floating voter that you need to convince come an election doesn't seem to be too bothered by that, do they? I mean, I think Leo Varadkar is a lot of spin, but that doesn't mean he's not some substance as well. They're not contradictory spin yeah. and substance, you know. And and as as Michal Martin did say in his interview, of course, presentation is important. Hence, he's giving interviews. Uh, but I think in, in Michal Martin's interviews on substance, I mean, he said two different things about two different topics, which goes back to Colette's point about what, what exactly do they stand for? And, and one, I think, uh, is a deep wisdom uh, and the other is potentially quite concerning. Uh, and the one that concerns me is that in relation to housing policy, he's floating an idea that Fianna Fáil will seek tax breaks for, for landlords. Uh, there's not a lot of detail there, but in, in including, uh, you know, that they would write off a property tax uh, against rental profits. And my problem with that is that any tax break for landlords is paid by people going to work who then out of their earned and tax wages have to pay rent because they can't afford a mortgage. And I don't see the justice of that. And I don't see what that's going to do for the housing market. And it seems to me an extension of the stringent and absolutely correct criticism that Fianna Fáil made of Simon Coveney's proposal uh, about... um, you know, g- g- giving giving landlords a break uh, a year and a half ago. But, it, but it's the same old line from Fianna Fáil, isn't it? Because, I mean, what what, what are they most associated with or, or what do their critics, you know, use as the stick to beat them with the most? Uh, tax breaks for developers. And so all we have is a word change here. We have tax breaks for landlords now and that's supposedly the big idea that's coming from Fianna Fáil. So, I mean, they're going to need and something it's, it's else. And it's not a big idea. And as I say, it seems to me like a slightly barmy one. And another idea that he has, I think, is much more much more serious, and I predict it will get very little attention, is that in terms of, of the spin bit of government and the bit that is actually really concerning, uh, he points to the fact that, you know, the Strategic Communications Unit was a uh, follow-on from the whole Creative Ireland concept, and that Creative Ireland is a way in which significant amounts of government money is being spent directly, politically, by politicians in government instead of being given at arm's length to a completely independent arts council who then gives that money uh, separately from government to to arts organisations. That won't get much publicity, I predict, but actually that's a fundamental issue about state expenditure, culture, media and spin. Okay, explain that then in more detail. It's well, not going to give give it the airtime it deserves. <laughs> okay, so we have uh, it's since the nineteen fifties an independent arts council. They, the members of the arts council, are appointed by government. Uh, they are given an allocated budget every year, and then they allocate to various organisations, dance, theatre, and so on and so forth. Mm. And the Arts Act provides under one stipulation only that the government may give a policy instruction to the Arts Council, provided that instruction is given formally 
and in writing. And that, to my knowledge, uh, that's only ever been done once. And it, it, it was to ask the Arts Council to give priority to an area of the arts that had not tr uh, previously been given a lot of attention. It was done on the record in a very formal way under the Act. But what Creative Ireland is, is a means by which the Minister of the day spends at his or her discretion significant amounts of money where there are no criteria. You, you look at all the money being spent at, under Creative Ireland, you ask for the application form, you ask for the criteria, you ask for the independent assessment board uh, that's scoring various applications uh, by criteria and none of that has been there over the last two years and vast amounts of money have been spent in that way politically and that to me is very disturbing. And that is the genesis, both in terms of key personnel and in terms of uh, essentially the underlying idea of how the strategic communications unit followed on from Creative Ireland. And these essentially are unaccountable bodies that do not have independent boards, that are not at arm's length from politicians, and is a means by which expenditure is in political hands in a cultural area. And I think that's always been very sensitive. It should be regarded as very sensitive and it's always been hitherto completely at arm's length from the government of the day. And, and Martin correctly highlights that. It's a very, very important issue, particularly when we're looking at the role of media uh, and, and so on. And it, it should be uh, a lot more sensitivity around it. Jennifer, is it something that you've heard talked about before Michal Martin today? I suppose after the strategic communications, that whole debacle, uh, that there was a sense that that was a kind of a victory, uh, you know, over Leo Varadkar. Did, did everyone then just move on to what was the next scandal or, or you know, or were there voices um, in Leinster House, I suppose, espousing the views Jared is? You're always kind of moving on from one scandal to the next and, you know, these things can get for forgotten. But in uh, the Times Ireland, we actually did a lot of work on... Um, Creative Ireland, particularly in relation to its interactions with uh, the me with the media and in terms of how they wanted to present their various different campaigns or whatever uh, st strategies they were promoting at the time. And that directly actually led on to the strategic communications controversy. And um, we all know what happened there. And it is uh, it's it's not a legacy thing. It is an ongoing uh, criticism of the Taoiseach and an ongoing problem that uh, and it always comes back to this idea of spin of um, being obsessed with image, which is what we see in, in the papers today. And it is a problem for him because, like Jared said, you can also have substance while spinning at yeah. the same time. Like, that's absolutely true. The unfortunate thing is this is the one thing that keeps getting mentioned. And when you become known for just spinning, that's forgotten that maybe you do have substance underneath all of that spin. Um, and, you know, I know... Um, the point was made that it is silly season and we're going to see these kind of criticisms of uh, the Taoiseach, etc. But this is ongoing. It's nonstop. And he'll he'll have it until the day when he leaves office, basically. And, and whether it, it becomes the reason why he leaves office is hard to know. You know, there's many more banana skins as far as uh, the SCU or strategic communications are concerned. Colette, if you were advising Fianna Fáil and there was a general election... It's very uh, unlikely event. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you create distance between yourself and the government over 
uh, health, housing and the economy. Well, I think we need to see a lot more on policy from Fianna Fáil. Like, I, I mean, personally, I'm fed up of Mihal Martin standing up and giving out about Leo Varadkar being all spin. He's at it again in the papers today. OK, I mean, you made the point yourself earlier. We've heard this for the past year. We've probably heard it for even longer than that. You know, what are their policies on housing? How are they going to differentiate themselves from Fine Gael on health, particularly in the context when you have an all-party health committee who's signed up to the Slauncher Care Report. So essentially, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil have the same policies on health. It's just the implementation of that policy and that's the only way that they can differentiate themselves from them. But I mean, in relation to the tax breaks for landlords, I mean, there is something to be said that maybe the tax treatment of landlords does need to be looked at because you consistently hear from, you know, these accidental landlords that actually they can't write off, you know, the full costs of doing business and they're, you know, why they're getting out of the market is because it's lost leading. Now, in comparison to that, you have these big funds that are coming in and buying up all these properties and they're paying, you know, no or negligible amounts of tax in comparison to your, you know, one off kind of accidental landlord. So, I mean, maybe there is something there to be looked at. But I mean, this isn't. But ultimately, this don't isn't we want all idea. those accidentals to oh, free the market? God, no, and we God. want those but big I mean, ones is, in. Yeah, but they are people, Colette, who are unfair play to them. They took a punt to make a big capital gain. And some of them failed miserably. So when yeah, they were when those profits yeah, were no, there, what, what, they what took I'm them. Si- fair play to them. Now they're gone. They're losers. Okay, but there, 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 there is something to be said because in you know at the moment there is about three thousand properties for rent around the entire country. We have a crisis at the moment, so we need these people in until we have a supply of housing no, to, second, to, to, Colette, to replace If you're them. an accidental landlord who sinks beneath the waves, what happens to your house is it goes back on the market. That's the market working efficiently. And I don't want... So repossession? Ta- absolutely. Of course. So you're, I do you're, not advocating, want you're advocating for the repossession to be repossessed? Of, uh, of second properties from landlords. I'm not sure that's a policy that Fianna Fáil are going to No, it's not. It's absolutely not. But why not? Why should people going to work, paying taxes, so that they can pay extraordinarily high rents, have some of those taxes go to subsidise landlords people, who have, have failed who in are, their punt to take a big capital gain. We have people who are in those houses who are gain. renting the houses at the moment and it's giving them a roof over their heads and that's kind of the primary reason. But that reason same that house moment, will be some of these houses. It's not going to become uninhabited. Well, I, I, okay, but... It, it, in, in, okay, we can disagree disagree on that, but I mean, Fianna Fáil does need a bigger this idea. This is buttering the backsides of punters, you know, <laughs> who got in. Thanks for that lovely who, mental who, image, who, who, Jared. I'm, who, sure, who, I'm sure all the listeners are really appreciative who, 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 for their who, Sunday breakfast. Who, who went into the market to, to, to make a capital gain and lost. Yeah, we do. I, I, With I taxpayers' money who can't afford houses. When you look at f- the so-called functioning rental markets that we are meant to be trying to move towards, it, it, they are dominated by your big REITs. You know what I mean? Versions of them. These big, you know, multi-unit holders, commercial holders. And n- none of these single off kind of, you know, I'll buy an apartment to fund my pension type. Yeah, so I, we do need to weed them out. Yeah, but I mean, we also we, we, we also have these big funds coming in and they're not um, paying any tax or even a commensurate amount of tax with how much they're earning and they don't have any sympathy, to, you know, they, you know, when it comes to what the market will bear in terms of rent, they're just going to jack up rents. They don't care. They're these faceless kind of corporations. So, I mean, there's an, an argument there and uh, what Michal Martin is saying in relation to tax breaks for uh, landlords, what most concerned me about that was that, well, OK, well, the landlords are going to get something, but actually what are the, what are renters going to get? So, you know, if we are giving favourable treatment to some landlords, then, then there has to be a quid pro quo in terms of, you know, rental freezes or an agreement not to put up rents by an extortionate amount, something along those lines. But I mean, that's only a small part of the property market. An effective corporate tax market. rate as well. 
an effective corporate tax rate is what we yeah, need. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, all subsidies to all producers inflate market costs. Loads of coverage, as I said in the papers, on uh, Micheál Martin's uh, comments about Leo Varadkar, as well as some of minor policy proposals, as Colette said, not enough policy proposals, though, coming from Fianna Fáil. Uh, there is other political stories in the papers as well. We mentioned the uh, cervical cancer scandal that is ongoing. Um, there's lots of coverage inside the papers and on the front pages, and we're going to get to them after this quick break. On the record. On News Talk. You're very welcome back, Kieran Cudahy, with you here until one o'clock. Five three one zero six is the text number at Kieran Cudahy. You can get me on Twitter using that handle. Uh, Jennifer Bray, Colette Brown, Jared Howland are with me in studio. They say that you shouldn't read too much into the texts that come into a show that they're not representative of the population. But what I can tell you from my uh, layman's statistical analysis, data analysis, is that we have a lot of accidental landlords, Jared Howland, who listen to this show. My God, the things you're being called. Uh, I, I won't repeat some of them. Uh, needless to say, though, uh, they don't agree with you. They think tax breaks for landlords is a bloody great idea. Mm. Uh, look, plenty of coverage in the You papers. know your constituency, Kieran. I do, yeah. And, and I, do you know what? I've changed my mind in the ad break. Yeah, tax breaks for landlords is a great idea. Keep them in. Um, I mentioned when I was going through the front pages uh, some of the uh, cervical cancer stories. Sunday Independent as well uh, on page two. Vicky Phelan set to challenge Taoiseach over cancer pledge. Maeve Sheehan is that story. The Sunday Times cervical cancer victims demand public inquiry. Uh, Pain, tears and anger. A seriously ill mother endures court ordeal. Maeve Sheehan as well writing in the Independent on page three. Jennifer, I suppose after the AIDS referendum, Simon Harris was on a bit of a high. He was in this lovely honeymoon period. That has come crashing down, has it, in the last week? Yeah, we all knew it would, in fairness. I mean, you don't get to be the Minister for Health and enjoy anything like that for any great amount of time. And actually, I think that cervical cancer uh, controversy broke during the referendum and it was a real kind of dent to his stride at the time. But yeah, I mean, it was only around 12 weeks ago, really, that the Taoiseach stood out and said that he and the government would take over um, these cases and make sure that no woman would ever have to go through the agony of uh, standing up in court and explaining uh, private details, personal details of her health in front of a room full of barristers uh, and media, etc. And we were talking before the break a little bit about how uh, the public might get angry about an election or or blame this politician or blame that politician. They'll blame politicians for things like this. And the things that will really stick to Varadkar won't be his spin or substance, although that will that will stay. It will be the the overpromising. So they overpromised. They said that they would uh, step in on behalf of these women and make sure that there was mediation in every single case. And we can clearly see from what happened this week that that's not the case. Um, we saw the case of Ruth Morrissey, for example. Um, and what has happened is now we seem to see the state sort of blaming the labs and saying, well, the labs have indemnified. Uh, the HSE, etc. So they are dictating how these cases go. But this was exactly what the government said wouldn't happen. And now it's happening. And while we, um, you know, while they head off on their holidays, etc. And, and move into the next crisis, such as Brexit, what we're leaving behind are women who are devastated, uh, who are trying to pick up the pieces of their life, who are trying to piece together what, what they leave for their family. And uh, all of these empty promises. And, you know, at this meeting between Vicky Phelan and Leo Varadkar will be really very interesting on Wednesday. Um, she had sort of put off holding a meeting with actually and didn't seem to be too bothered with it. And now she says that it needs to happen. And uh, I, from reading the different papers, I see that she will 
be calling for a public commission of investigation, um, which I think many will welcome, because if you remember back um, in the Disclosures Tribunal, when it was being set up, the government had decided, yeah, we'll hold this commission, it'll be behind closed doors. And Morris McCabe came out and said, absolutely not. And while people who don't follow the Disclosures Tribunal day to day might not get the sort of complexities of it, it has shown a light and it shows the value of having uh, these commissions in public. Um, So I think that's important. Colette, do we need an inquiry, a big inquiry into this, though? Well, we don't even have the results of the initial investigation yet. That could yield the answers like this is this is typical of our discourse. Demand an inquiry before we even know if there's anything worth inquiring into. And sorry, when I say worth inquiring into, that's not being dismissive of the issues, but we could have answers before any inquiry is necessary. Yeah, and instead, I mean, the scoping exercise that's been done by Gabriel Scali, it seems to be quite a comprehensive scoping exercise. And I mean, I don't think there's any reason why we couldn't have just gone straight. I mean, there were very net kind of issues that needed to be kind of investigated and examined in this. It's not a very wide ranging topic. People knew the personalities that were involved. People knew the labs that were involved. Uh, People eventually had some awareness of the numbers of women that were affected. So it wasn't as if we had to go on this massive trawl for information. It was just an investigation into these you know, particular subjects. And I think the fact that we have this scoping exercise, I think that was done as a kind of a knee jerk reaction to kind of get this kind of farrago out of, um, you know, the uh, off the front pages and yeah. to give the government some breathing room. And what Jennifer was saying about the government over promising, they did all that at the start. I mean, I think within about two days of this um, scandal breaking back in April, we were hearing words like, um, you know, tribunal, inquiry, um, you know, uh, redress for women involved. And that was only within about 48 hours of the news even breaking before people had a full awareness of what they were talking about. So it's the government's kind of knee jerk reaction to do this. I think at last count, there are nearly 20 um, inquiries and public investigations ongoing in Ireland at the moment. So it is something that's really used by this government to try to manage bad press. And I mean, if Micheál Martin maybe wants um, to have a go with uh, Leo Varagher, maybe this is something that he could um, br- bring up and raise. But I I think the government have to walk a fine line here and it's going to be difficult for them because remember, these labs provide an important service for the Irish Public Health Service. So we have screening programmes, cancer screening programmes that have led to the rates of cancer, you know, dropping a lot in this country. And those contracts for those labs are going to be up for renewal at some point. And if it's seen that the cost of litigation or the cost of doing business in Ireland is too oppressive or too onerous, then it's going to be very difficult for them to get labs to become involved in the Irish public health system. So I think that that's a concern that maybe people in government have and that while, you know, the treatment of these women has been awful and the sight of Ruth Morrissey having to go into the High Court um, during the week and give evidence and all this personal information that she had to give, obviously very hurtful and, you know, very difficult for her. But the government have also have to be cognizant of, you know, the health of, you know, the remainder of the country and, you know, the prospect of trying to get labs involved when, you know, they may be looking at at Ireland as somewhere where maybe they don't want to um, uh, do business anymore. Uh, To to, to go back uh, briefly to to that promise, I suppose, made by the Taoiseach and by Simon Harris that women wouldn't have to uh, go into court. Kieran Breen in State Claims Agency very early in this scandal was before Narotta's committee and quite clearly said, well, look, we can't control the the, the labs in the States. You know what I mean? If if Mm. they're fighting this Mm. for whatever reason they might want to on uh, questions of fact or on questions of law, there's there's nothing we can do about it. It doesn't seem like it would have taken a particularly sharp legal mind to say to the 
Taoiseach, you know you can't promise to keep people out of court. It's fairly clear how the system works here. No, and uh, lawyers uh, will advise their clients and, and clients will decide accordingly. And I suppose there's a couple of things that are completely or significantly outside of the control of the government converging here, uh, not least of which is their own agencies and servants. Um, you know, there is no CEO, director of, of the HSE in place at the moment. There is no board of the HSE in place at the moment. And what you have are uh, senior public servants, some of them medics, some of them not, who feel very bruised by the language and tone of the government in terms of the describing them and, and, and their work. Uh, they've legaled up. I don't believe they're in a particularly cooperative frame of mind. And I'm quite sure that that is some drag in terms of the government's capacity to deal with all of this and, and to move on from it. You're not in charge of public servants whom you have not hired and cannot fire. Uh, and I think that's something that Simon Harris forgot uh, when he used some of the language he used. I'm not saying the language was wrong or it was inappropriate, but I'm saying that it was impolitic, which is worse. Uh, and now that you know, it's coming back home to, to roost. Uh, the la- you talked about the labs. They're another aspect that are outside the control of the system uh, he- here. But of course, the underlying reality is that goes back to the source of this issue is that our system here is not under effective con- political control or democratic uh, accountability. So that you had people taking decisions about who was entitled to what information uh, with impunity. Uh, and that system remains in place. Uh, the, the the larger issue of reform, which has loomed for decades, it's coming back into focus, as Colette said earlier, in, in the Sloan to Care. But Sloan to Care has been slow marched uh, to nowhere, I think. Uh, so there isn't an appetite for fundamental reform that would, in time, but not in time for these women, I hasten to add, make the fundamental changes in the system that caused this culture, that caused this problem. And in the meantime, the system as is cannot command even its own servants and agencies. Not to speak of labs outside the country. Jennifer, George used the the phrase accountability there. And regardless of whether it's in the SCALI, the the scoping report or uh, a public inquiry or a tribunal, you, you can always write what the result would be in terms of the, the HSE's management of the information from the audit. You know, that there will be ultimately no personal accountability. There'll be talk about a culture mm-hmm. of secrecy and that there was a lack of openness and transparency and that even while that was a, a policy of the HSE, it wasn't mandatory and, you know, therefore this happened, it is regrettable and new policies mean it, it should not happen again. The, 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 the greater question to a degree, the question that actually impacts women's lives and their health is at the lab end, whether the figure that they quoted for predicted false negatives was lower than their actual rate of false negatives or whether there was some degree of human error that's happening or had happened, uh, has happened and shouldn't have. They're, they're really the questions that impact women's lives. You know, the, it's awful that they weren't told, but that, you know, the, the audits happened post cancer diagnosis. Given that those labs are in the States, it's a really roundabout question. Uh, you know, to come back to accountability, uh, as we've seen with other tribunals, we'll, we'll never get to a stage with this. Or is it It's unrealistic to think you'd get to a stage where there'd be real accountability for anyone? Well, anyone who watched the Public Accounts Committee's hearing or the, or the Health uh, Committee hearings, which I did, um, will have seen that actually that that is exactly the case. 
they went round and round from person to person, from um, division to division and management structure to management level, one above the other, asking them, were you in charge of telling these women? No. Okay, so was the person above you in charge? No. What about the person below you? No. And there was one telling part at the very end, one of the very final hearings, when all of the managers from uh, the various different, like cervical check, the national screening service, um, you know, the, the clinical director of the Department of Health, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they were all asked individually. Somebody had told the state claims agency basically that all these women had been told about their audits, and we know that that was not the case. Mm. And each of them was asked, "Was it you? Was it you?" And everybody said no. And that to me just showed clearly that not only will we not have accountability, this report, like you say, will probably say something like, yes, it's an awful pity. There should have been more oversight. Here's what the HSE can do to change. But there'll be no one person, I don't think, held accountable for the women not being told. So that's the first issue that you're touching on. I don't think so. Not at all, no. And secondly, in relation to the labs, that is key, really, because like Colette says, um, what they provide and what has been provided is a, is a public service that has brought down the levels of cancer. You are always going to have a certain number of false positives or f- false negatives. It's not diagnostic, it's a screening tool. And that's fine. And I think we all have a better awareness of that now. An awareness that we should have had before, an awareness that the HSE should have been much more straightforward with. Those leaflets they had should have said clearly, here are the percentage chances of a, of a miss, etc. Mm. And they didn't. So there is a lesson to be learned. But in terms of the labs, I would be very interested to see if they over or underestimated or if there was some element of human error that wasn't reported. And that will be the key in terms of the Scali report. And, um, you know, but the the problem with that is that the Scali report has been so delayed. And then there is this other massive tranche of women. I think it's around 1,500 women who never had their original cases audited for whatever reason they were outside the service, etc. They will be waiting possibly up to eight months is what one of the women who was told told me. Um, and that's a really long time of, of, you know, worrying, could my cancer have been caught? Who's responsible without having any answers? And secondly, there are 50 women as, as of the last count who are taking legal cases. Um, that's probably going to rise to around 80. That's going to take at least a year. So this controversy is going nowhere, whether we have the results of the Scully report or not. So, you know, the government's overpromises will come back to haunt them. But this time next year, if we're still talking about this and it's getting worse and worse, this could be the issue that undoes the government. Colette, from a, a political point of view, as once the chorus becomes loud enough for a public inquiry, the government would feel their hands are tied, but, regardless of what's in well, the Scali report. Well, I think the report. government has already said that it is going to have a public inquiry. I mean, I think it had decided that before even the Scali inquiry was um, set up. So, I mean, it, it was always the case and the government had said since, you know, the very inception of the Scali inquiry that it was just going to be a scoping exercise that would be then used to set up the terms of reference of a public inquiry. So, I mean, we'll probably be back here in three or four years discussing their <laughs> discussing the public inquiry and how it's like trundled on for years and years because that seems to be the way that like public scandals, the, the, the route that they take, we uh, there's a kind of a competitive outrage from, you know, various opposition politicians, uh, public inquiry gets set up. It tends to go off the rails at a certain point because it has terms of reference that suddenly become vague and muddled and then it goes off on, you know, mad tangents and 
um, you know, everybody eats up loads of uh, eats up loads of time and loads of money. So, I mean, I think it, there could have been a very focused, a very net. Um, I mean, wh- all, all we really needed to see here was who was responsible for telling these women about the audit? Was there anybody who was responsible for doing it? And it doesn't seem that there was mm. because there was this kind of uh, people within cervical check and, you know, consultants that was being batted back and forth mm. between them. Um, so, I mean, there, there's that issue. There's also the issue of whether the US labs were somehow, you know, less efficient or less reliable than the Irish labs that the government was using. And then maybe we need international comparisons to see whether the US labs that the government was using and indeed the Irish labs that the government was using, whether when you um, have an international comparison, whether they're false negatives or false positives, whether they were the norm or whether they were somehow, you know, deficient. And I mean, there, there are the issues. That's what we need to look into. And in order for the public to have confidence in cancer screening programs, we need answers to those questions very quickly. And I think what's concerning actually is there was supposed to be a review of the test that the labs did that was performed by the uh, the UK College of um, Obstetricians. Yeah. And that hasn't even started yet. And there's no sign of when it is going to start. And when Simon Coveney, or sorry, not Simon Coveney, when Simon Harris was making all his promises in the immediate wake of the scandal breaking, he was assuring people that that review would be done within a matter of months. And I mean, it hasn't even started yet. By the end of May, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, look, uh, as Jennifer said, initially, this is a story that is likely not to go anywhere. As Claire said, maybe in three or four years, we'll still be mm. here. The four of us will be here in this <laughs> well, In the meantime, a lot of lawyers made a lot of money and it'll be our money. And, some and it won't be died. money that will be going to the, uh, I, I, not to the people concerned, because sadly, some of them will have passed on to the surviving families. Mm. Uh, on that note, we'll take a quick commercial break. On the record. On News Talk. You are listening to On The Record, Kieran Cody with you until one o'clock. 53106 is the text number that will cost you 30 cent or you can get us on Twitter at Kieran Cody. I want to read a tweet here from Gavin Duffy, uh, at Gavin Duffy verified account three hours ago. If I get the required four council nominations, I will run the most modern demo- dynamic interactive election campaign possible. If you want to be on the roller coaster, make history, elect a president that is not just above, but is not of politics email info at gavinduffy.ie if you want to know more. He uh, preceded that by saying, good morning, just to let you know, after some speculation, I confirmed that I am seeking a nomination from four local authorities to contest the presidential election. I've accepted an invitation to speak at Waterford Council this Tuesday at 4pm. It's dangerous territory reading out tweets uh, during a presidential campaign, I realise. But anyway, we'll start there. Uh, Plenty of coverage in the papers um, about the upcoming election, a probable upcoming election. Uh, Gavin Duffy has given an interview uh, to Liam Collins. Uh, does he cadet, set out his grand policy objectives? What kind of president will he be? And It's just all this kind of guff about business, this and, you know, new vision for Ireland and how important it is for democracy to have um, an election. And like personally, I don't think Irish democracy is going to be endangered if we don't have a presidential election. It's a symbolic office. It doesn't really have any political clout in terms of being able to make political decisions or influence policy. Um, You know, President Higgins has done a very good job. What I think is funny about this is that all of the kind of contenders who want to get into the ring with um, President Higgins agree that he's doing a, agree that he's on a sterling 
brilliant job, that he's a great fellow. But, you know, but just in the interest, of, but just this, yeah. in the interest of democracy, they feel compelled to put he's themselves great, forward greater. because, you know, they're being approached by <laughs> randomers on the street, left, right and centre who are begging and pleading with them to put their names forward so that they'll run, they'll run for the president. Um, Leonie Rieda, the possible Sinn Féin candidate, although I think it's interesting that Sinn Féin aren't going to bother announcing who they're going to get to run until September, which seems a bit late in the day. But she gave an interview yesterday and it was all going kind of quite nicely for a while. But then she was asked a pretty reasonable question by Marion Finucane yesterday about how she would be a president for the entire Ireland of Ireland, given the way that Sinn Féin had celebrated the 1916 commemoration and that instead of kind of getting on board with the state commemoration, they'd gone off and done their own thing. And she engaged in this extraordinary five minute kind of hissy fit wherein she said that the question was unfair and how dare she be asked it. And, you know, it wasn't really fair for her to be asked the question. It was a completely reasonable question for her to have expected to be asked, which I thought was kind of car crash anyway. In relation to Gavin Duffy, we saw in the paper today that there's apparently a secret poll that Sean Gallagher has done and you know, let's just hope that Sean Gallagher doesn't isn't another one to throw his hat into the ring. But apparently that he's the second most popular candidate after uh, Michael D. And Gavin Duffin, Duffy, unfortunately, was only able to garner, I think, two to three percent support in that poll. So he has an uphill battle in front of him. Jared, uh, I don't control the microphone in front of you. I can't turn it on or off. So if you want to announce your candidacy now, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> go for it. No, no. I mean, I'm deluded and besotted, but not to that extent. Um, You'd have a, a, a good contingent of voters in the uh, accident. Landlord well, the accidental <laughs> landlords will definitely be on They're my side. I'm sure, I'm sure they'd all be yeah. there. <laughs> that, that's, that's for sure. Um, I'm delighted there's a presidential election. I always believed there would be one. I couldn't understand how anyone thought there couldn't be because the diffusion... Because there never has been one before when the incumbent said that they wanted to go for it except in 1966. So that's why people thought that there wouldn't be an election. And in 1966, there were two differences. One is, first of all, a very young 40-year-old man called Tom O'Higgins, who wasn't exactly, I think, a household name at the time, came within 10,000 votes of unseating an iconic Irishman, Eamon de Valera. But in this context, there's something that's totally different. And that is, there's been a massive diffusion of politics in, in, in that 50 years. So, uh, you know, you, you, the, the big parties control a much smaller uh, slice of the cake. Independents and smaller parties are much different. And of course, that reflects cultural change, that we are a much more diffuse society. So the idea that a president was going to roll on for another seven years without a challenge in the circumstances where there were numbers out there on county councils and in the Oireachtas to easily provide an alternative candidate with a nomination uh, was just nonsense from the get-go. And I'm personally very glad that there will be an election because I think the presidency is very important. Why? The presidency has reserved powers, uh, two in particular. One is to uh, refer a bill to the Supreme Court uh, after seeking the advice of the Council of State if a president at his discretion believes it's unconstitutional. And secondly, can refuse a Taoiseach a dissolution of the Dáil. And both of those powers, they may be you know, reserved powers, they may be used uh, in one very rarely, uh, and the other in the history of the state, not at all. But they are absolutely crux, the crux of how our democracy is managed, either in, in very sensitive situations or indeed potentially in crisis. And if you go back to the nearest we ever came to this, which would have been when Patrick Hillary, a, a very fine president, 
uh, was there in 1982 and you had something of this scenario unfolding uh, that his, if you like, his nerve and his experience were hugely important. In relation to to Michael D. Higgins, I think he has done a reasonably good job, but I also think he should be challenged. From my point of view, if, if you're 77, I think it's absolutely reasonable that you put through, be put through a very rigorous process for a seven year extension. Uh, I, I just think it's Codswallop to pretend otherwise. Is that not ageism? Yeah, it's, it is ageism. I'm 53 myself and I don't expect. And I think you're past it. And I know I'm past it, Kieran. <laughs> but you and I know we're not getting seven year extensions to any contract we'll ever hold without being put through the ringer. That's life. Uh, the Constitution explicitly provides for it. It's good. It's positive. Let's get on with it. Jennifer, is there any nerves amongst Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael now that there is going to be an election and that Sinn Féin, I suppose, will have this platform maybe to lay out their, I suppose, their broad policy objectives for the country? You know, the, the idea being that for Sinn Féin, the journey is more important than the destination here. I'd say there are some nerves. Um, I'm not really picking up on very many nerves, to be honest. I think there's more of a feeling that you know, Sinn Féin, if they go ahead and they, um, which they will, obviously, they'll go ahead with their presidential candidate, um, that actually what might happen in the end is that this rigorous media process we're talking about, that they too will be subjected to it, obviously. And for them, it'll be a lot more difficult because they have so many more legacy issues to deal with. So what you're actually going to have are the candidates, whether it's Leah or, or John, being asked about, you know, Jerry Adams, the IRA, um, historical cases, you know, that we all that we all know about and that you're dragging up all these things from the past at a time when you have this new leader who's supposed to be the new brand and the new face um, representing a sort of a, a whole new era of politics, etc. Um, so that's a real danger for them. And I think maybe someone in Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are hoping that they might trip themselves up. Is there an idea maybe that, you know, keep bringing these up uh, now and just people will get bored of it, well, that the electorate will just get bored of being asked about the troubles all the time, um, the Sinn Féin candidate? I don't know, really. I, I mean, maybe that's an element of it, but I think that whether the electorate are bored or not, they're going to be inundated with it. You know, that's that's the case. And, and Kieran, that's our that's up to us. That's up to our gumption. And yeah. So it'll be a test for us, the people. But it's it's also the level of questioning because yeah. Pat Rabbit actually has an interesting piece in the Sunday Business Post today. He's pointing out that the presidential elections are a blood sport. And they are. We know that from the last presidential election. I mean, it was an absolute battleground. Um, and, uh, you know, Sean Gallagher would tell you, David Norris would tell you that. I mean, he feels very strongly about it, obviously. And actually, we see a little bit of it today in the on the front page of the Sunday Independent. Gavin Duffy is talking about uh, how all um, candidates should undergo a rigorous examination. Uh, he is expecting personal questions and he feels that the incumbent should also face personal questioning. Um, basically what he what he expects to face. So he's already setting the tone for the next couple of weeks. But I think he's, he's preempting what the reality of what is about to happen to him, you know, yeah, so he's exactly. just kind of accepting of his fate. But I do think Fianna Fáil are missing a trick here because they could have, you know, it looks like a presidential election, obviously we're going to have one now um, and it would have been a good opportunity for Fianna Fáil to get like candidates well known in constituencies, to have people being uh, gaining faces recognised and, you know, the all important like policy issues that have been kind of missing from you know, uh, Fianna Fáil to date on housing, health and all of those other important social issues, they would have had a month kind of free reign where Fine Gael wouldn't have been able to kind of get involved because they're supporting the incumbent as 
they have to do because of the relationship that they've Fine Gael have had with Michael D since he was elected in 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sinn Féin are going to have a free run at this. The difficulty for Sinn Féin is that it's hard to think of a candidate other than Michael D who would be you know more Sinn Féin e in terms of his left wing and kind of socialist credentials. Um, so you know it does seem that they are just doing you know, running a candidate just for the sake of it. But I mean, seeing as they're going down that route and we have all these other like uh, independent hopefuls who are hopeful of also joining the fray, I think maybe it would have been wiser for Fianna Fáil to get involved as well. Jennifer, I know Jared wanted an election because of uh, what it means for democracy. I just want one because they're character assassinations. You the <laughs> same? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, to be honest with you, like when I... It's refreshing honesty there, Kira. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, when I first thinking about it, I was like, well, God. No lofty talk about democracy or values. I don't mind democracy. Overvalued. I think that's for the to country. be admired. <laughs> I think you're just speaking what um, pretty much every politician in the country is thinking, to be honest. Um you know, well, also like to be totally selfish about this, we're going into city season for those of us who will work over the summer. There's nothing else happening. And it's actually really bad for some of the candidates because many of us have nothing else to do except go digging and digging and digging. And that's what they're getting themselves into. And I'm not saying that they're going to get an, an unfair hearing, but they'll definitely get a rigorous, um, a rigorous investigation, to put it mildly. Uh, look, we only have a couple of minutes left and uh, we've done very well to get this far and not mention Brexit, the B word. But we're going to just very quickly do it because there is coverage in the papers. And as I imagine there will be every week between now and October and then between October and March and then between March and whenever the end of the transition deal, which is going to get pushed and pushed further out, I'd imagine. Uh, all change at Hollyhead if no deal is landed, says Colin McCarthy. Radcliffe destroying UK-Irish relations, says Martin. This is an excerpt from Michal Martin's uh, interview. That's in the Sunday Times. Uh, that's sorry, I don't panic, we'll deal with the no deal. Tim Shipman and Mark Hookman writing in the Sunday Times. Sunday Times as well, Colette, uh, have a piece that uh, hard Brexiteers now are kind of seem to be softening on the Norway model. We're <laughs> yeah. back to Norway. Yeah, 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 because they just don't know what they're going to do and they've run out of ideas. So th- so they're back to that again. Um, Michal Martin in his interview today, in one of his many interviews today, accused uh, Leo Varadkar of Brit bashing. So, th- so I think we're, he we're going there. he got bashed last week. Remember Airhead? <laughs> oh yes, he did. He got Brit bashed. Now he's a Brit basher. Um, Jody Corcoran in his piece today in the Sunday Indo says that um, if there was a no deal, it would be an indictment of the supercharged approach taken by Leo Varadkar and his government. Now, you know, I think that we can blame Leo Varadkar and his government for a lot, but I don't think we can necessarily blame them for... Uh, the UK crashing out of the EU next year if if that's what happens. I mean, uh, Brexit continues to be just an ongoing farce. Uh, the danger is now that we're only eight, nine months away from the March deadline and it's looking like a, a no deal is more and more likely. It, it, it's also looking more and more likely, I think, Jennifer, isn't it? And you see this, some soundings on the UK side as well, that essentially will get the deadline will be pushed out a little bit yeah absolutely I think it'll be pushed out in two ways firstly like what's happening now is the negotiators are going in to talk about this backstop but they're all going to go on holiday soon until late August is what I'm told so then really they're only going to be going back in in September in which case you have four weeks or so until uh, the October deadline that's obviously going to be missed in terms of the backstop that's a huge problem for the government and they will be pilloried for it um, so that will be extended that'll be fudged and kicked into the long grass like it has been and like it always will be um, and then the second thing is that the talks themselves will have to be extended um, as a whole. So there's another thing being, but it's only so far you can extend them for, you know, it's only so far you can push the article, the mechanisms of Article 50 to be totally boring about it. Um, and, you know, where we are headed for a no deal Brexit, that's the, that's the fact. But, Nobody mean, has head, any idea what they want, yeah, especially... 
Britain. And the headlines during the week in the British past have just been extraordinary. You know, stockpiling food, I stockpiling know. medicine. And if we did, if we cast our minds back to when this all happened and Boris Johnson mm. said uh, Brexit was going to be the British having their cake and eating it too. And now a couple of months later, they're stockpiling food because they're not sure whether they're going to have enough bread or, you uh, know, it's tin like beans. Lemmings, to, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, just look, crazy. If we're destined to be uh, talking about the cervical scandal in four years time, God knows how long we're going to be talking about Brexit and the, the the fallout from it a lot longer than that. On that note, Jennifer Bray, Deputy Political Editor uh, with Times Ireland Edition, Colette Brown, Barrister and Columnist with the Irish Independent, and Jared Howland, Irish Examiner, Columnist, Public Affairs Consultant, former Senior Political Advisor. Thank you all very much for coming in. Uh, after the break, really interesting uh, piece. We're going to be t- chatting uh, to uh, Dr. Mark Jones. He is a UCD historian. He's based in Berlin at the moment. And Mesut Ozil, the German footballer, you might have seen this, retired essentially with a statement saying, when we win, I'm German. When we lose, I'm Turkish. And it has release this cacophony of uh, voices in Germany I suppose defending him others attacking him it looks like Germany for the Germans is in vogue again we all remember how that turned out the last time and Mark will be giving us his take on all of it after this quick break On the Record On, the record. on News Talk 